Welcome to Raising Standards with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith, a true Roman history podcast for true Romans. Hail Caesar. Welcome to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome. I'm Rhiannon Evans. And I'm Matt Smith. This is Season 2, Episode 4, Testudo et Lepus. Lepu? Lepus? Lepus. We're not French here. Okay. Lepus. You pronounce every letter in Latin. Okay. All right. I should know that. Uh, in this episode, Varinus goes in search of his enslaved children. Timon has a change of heart and character. Octavian levels up, and Artia and Sevilia escalate their feud. I don't know how much further they can escalate it past this. Is I didn't think they could escalate it anymore already. Nuclear warfare on the horizon. Uh, this episode was written by Todd Ellis Kessler and directed by Adam Davidson. Hello, Rhiannon. How are you going? Hey, Matt. All good? All going well? All is going well. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of uh, this episode? Is it a, a fond look at HBO's Rome this time? <laughs> I'm not fond of the torture, as you know. And there was a lot in this episode. There was a lot. Yeah, two rounds of torture, just in case. And yeah, bloody faced and and a battlefield with hacked limbs and mm. what have you. I'm not against the realism. You shouldn't have a sanitized version of Rome. Yes. We've talked about this before. Torture of the slave is interesting. We'll come to that. But I did feel it, it kind of ladled it on. Particularly with Servilia, who's kind of been through uh, at least a lesser version of this before. Remember, she was beaten up in... She was beaten in the street, had Mm. some of her hair cut, stripped naked, Mm. off you go. Publicly humiliated kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, this ended in public humiliation, but it was much worse beforehand. Yeah, I I don't think the public humiliation in this one was intentional. No, she wasn't intended to get out at all. Yeah. It sort of felt like a ratcheting up of what we'd already seen between her and Art, yeah. Oh, definitely, and I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm not really sure why we went through that again. So I could see reason for the other bits of blood and gore. Mm. The relationship between them I'm finding a bit puzzling. Okay. Anyway, we'll discuss it more when we get to it, I'm sure. Sure. Let's uh, tackle, firstly, the, the name of this episode, mm. uh, Testuda et Lupus, the tortoise, lepus. Lepus, tortoise and the hare. Lupus is wolf. Yeah, Lupus is wolf. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a different episode. Tortoise and the wolf. That might make more sense to me, actually. <laughs> I mean, the wolf being Roman and there's, you know, plenty yeah. of tearing yeah. apart here. Sure. Maybe people can tell us. I at least don't know. I mean, I know it means the tortoise and the hare. Mm. But, and, of course, that story is the tortoise, even though Slow they're slower. They wins get, the race. Yeah. yeah. Who's that referring to? I don't know. Because it's not Antony. No. Oct- Octavian. Well, Octavian's the one. You he's, know. Not, he's not being slow and steady. <laughs> he's not, is he? But it's hard to get past the spoiler that he will win the race. <laughs> I'm not sure where it's going past this point, but Sevilla and Atia? Maybe. That just came into my mind. Is Sevilla going to win this race? Because A, I can't remember. My memory's awful in terms of the series. Mm. And B, none of what is going on between them is from historical sources at all. Yeah, yeah. So right from the beginning, Artia has been portrayed in a, a very different fashion to what we have in our sources. And we have no inkling of a feud between them, certainly that transpired in anywhere like this. They could do anything. Yeah. So who knows? Maybe it is those two. Again, nuclear warfare. Yeah. So before we discuss today's episode in detail, let's go to a, a quick interview This is with uh, Todd Ellis Kessler, who's the writer of this episode of Rome, as well as being a member of the writing room. Uh, He was a supervising producer on a couple of season two episodes, so he's got good knowledge of that season and and how it played out. Uh, Around Hollywood, he has written and produced for a number of television programs such as Pan Am, The Unit, Nashville, and The Good Wife. So it was great to speak to him about this episode of Rome. The first series had been a very difficult trial 
for everybody involved because they didn't have a writing staff. They had some freelancers who mostly were experienced in movies and not in television. Mm. And Bruno Heller, who was the creator of the show, had also never run a staff of writers. So he didn't understand, I think, at first what he was missing. And then the network convinced him or he convinced himself that he needed a team to approach the second season. So we all came on as he was editing the first season and started planning the second season together. Yeah, yeah, okay. And what did that involve when you when you looked at the first season and saw what a writer's room could bring, this kind of structure, and also the constraints that you were given, I suppose, with the second season? Because I, I guess while we know now that the second season is the last of the show, you didn't know that initially, did you? I get the impression that you guys were working like you had four or five years for maybe the first six episodes or so of the second series. Is that about right? Well, what happened was, I think we began work together in May. We spent about two or three months doing research. Mm. We, really had, we had sort of a, a tutorial for several months of just reading and, uh, and having like mini lectures with Jonathan Stamp, our Oxford-educated Roman scholar, which was an amazing creative time to be able to just do the research and then talk about the characters. And then we began the actual outlining and the writing by late summer that year as the new show was getting ready to premiere the first season. And what was going on simultaneously is that Warner Brothers was under attack by a corporate raider named Carl Icahn, who accused the management of Warner Brothers of profligacy across the board. And so in response to this, to defend themselves against shareholder criticism, uh, my understanding was that they issued a sort of an edict across the board to all Warner Brothers departments, including HBO, to cut budgets by 15%. Mm. Rome had not aired yet, and it was already by far the largest production budget they had ever seen. That first season was $100 million. And Chris Albrecht and his colleagues looked at Rome as an untested expenditure at that point and thought, we might be hemorrhaging money. This could be a liability. We are going to tell them that it's going to be two seasons. Now, originally it was going to be, if I'm not mistaken, 12 episodes uh, for the second season. We had already outlined the first four to six. and We were well into our first or second drafts when we found out there would be no third season or fourth season. And so we uh, were told we had to collapse the third season into the current second season. And that meant getting all the way to Egypt and meeting Cleopatra in season two, which we were not going to do until season three. And we threw out six scripts, which is rare. Oh, my God. All, all that work was thrown out. And we started planning the new season. And then we were told, oh, you only have 12 episodes, you'll have 10. Again, back up and revise and change it. I have to say, I think we were lucky that we had each other as a writing staff because one person doing that would have had a meltdown. Mm -hmm. But at least we were all in the trenches together and we quickly set upon redoing the season and rewriting everything. And then I guess by January, two of the writers moved to Rome to be there for production. And the other two of us stayed back in Los Angeles to continue writing with Bruno Heller going back and forth. It was a little bit of a, of a hectic time, you know, for that production, but it was a smoother time than the first season. Yeah. And I was glad ultimately that we did get as far as we did because we all wanted to get there. We wanted to have the fight between Mark Antony and Octavian 
we wanted to get to Cleopatra. So at least we got there and we didn't have to end the season, you know, earlier than that. Mm, mm. Yeah, considering the build-up that, you know, Cleopatra had been in at this point, I think, two episodes. She turns up at the end of season one and she turns up early in season two. So if you didn't get to that point, it would have been a, a hanging thread line, which would have been a shame. And that is yeah. quite a build-up. And I guess the only other logical end point, which is maybe where you were originally building towards the second season, is the, the Battle of Philippi between Antony and Octavian and Brutus and Cassius. So that that is now uh, episode six of season two, and that was maybe where you could have finished season two originally. Is, is that vaguely the, the plan? Yeah, I, if I remember, I think that was sort of vaguely part of the plan. You know, we also had to make a, some budget changes, you know, in looking at how we approached a lot of these battle scenes. When I first started, we had the producers from the Italian unit come over mm. and they said to us going to season two, how would you like a river? We'll build you the waterfront. <laughs> that, that was like amazing. Are you kidding? You're going to build us a river. And they did. And they said, can you use this, you know, in your storytelling? Because we think it would be great visually. So we said, sure, we'll design stories around this amazing set you want to build along the river. But then quickly thereafter, when the budgets were under scrutiny, we had to re-examine a lot of scenes that we would have written, and ultimately some of it to the advantage of the show. For example, in uh, the episode that I wrote, Testudo, with Lepus, that rabbit and the hare, mm -hmm. I did a lot of research on the battle, and it was going to be the battle where we revealed the older version of Octavian as he comes and meets Pulo, who is searching for Varinus on the battlefield mm -hmm. and fearing that he's dead. Mm -hmm. And I had done all this research on Roman battle tactics hoping that we could, with our wonderful budget, portray this accurately, only to be told after the first or second draft, we wouldn't have the money to do that battle. And we need to figure out something else. But I do think in the end, it helped the drama because what we did is that we chose to tell the story from Pulo's point of view as he comes searching for Varinus and only finds a vast field of corpses from the battle and it amps up his you know, desperation to find his friend and we reasoned that, you know, the audience has seen many battles in many movies and TV shows. And so we opted instead to play for the emotion of the character in that scene rather than the sword play. And then let that be the moment when Octavian, the elder version, arrives on horseback. Mm. And it becomes a rather auspicious entry for the actor. Yeah. Yeah. That was a very evocative scene. The battlefield, uh, in particular, the aftermath, which you don't usually see. I've got to say, if you see a battle, you see a battle. You never see hacked limbs and what have you and the, the chaos of it afterwards and just how much it devastates the landscape. So that was, that was really great to see. And uh, the entrance of Octavian in that scene was really quite good. He, he subtly reminds Pullo that uh, he is now Caesar. He calls himself Caesar. He's not anymore a young master. He's not Octavian. And he straight away shuts down that familiarity to some extent, that Polo feels inclined to evoke. So that was that was a really good scene. It was disappointing to have to write it, but then ultimately reward it. Because yeah. I was so upset that I had done all that research for nothing. Uh, <laughs> How did you write that on the page then? How does it look? George Lucas famously, when he writes a lightsaber scene battle, just writes and then they fight. So how does that look when you're trying to write a, a battle scene aftermath like that? It was minimized somewhat. I didn't go into detail about which limbs were hacked off, which victims. Mm. But I did talk about Pulo on the horseback and Pulo coming over the hill. And as he crests the hill, 
you start to see bodies and then more bodies and then more mm. and the acres of, of human wreckage. I don't remember exactly the words that were in the script, but it was evocative enough to imply that his search for Varinus would be in vain, you know, really in this, in this muddy, horrible aftermath. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk me through the process and what the decision was behind aging up Octavian like that? Because it was it was quite a drastic thing to do when, uh, if you look at the timelines, so much time has passed in the show already and the cast hasn't really aged. Uh, it's interesting. It's, it's sort of funny because it is necessity is the mother of invention. Mm. And in this case, Max, the actor who played young Octavian, um, was a student. And his parents were not in favor of him acting. Really? They wanted him to go back to school. And so he complied and he said, I'm going back to school. And it was just a question of what episode he'd be going, but he would be leaving us in the mid-season. And so we looked at the calendar of years and had to figure out where could we make that cut to introduce a new character. And I think I remember vaguely that we had a discussion about whether we would start a new episode with Augustus or whether we would choose a moment within an episode and we took a risk because we thought, you know, it might be jarring um, to suddenly see this new actor uh, appear in the middle of an episode, but we went for it. And I guess if I remember, you know, it just part of it had to do with Max's schedule and going back to school and where we were in the timeline of events going to the battle. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now that you've said that, um, it works quite well, and part of that is a, is a kudos to the actor Simon Woods who steps into the role of Augustus. So while it is jarring, I very quickly kind of got over it, especially within the next couple of episodes. It could have worked or it could have fallen apart. You don't often see a character recast in a show like that, but I guess when it's such a pivotal one to the show, like Octavian, you definitely need him around for the rest of the season. So. And he was the only character who whose aging would be most visible. The others were all adults from the beginning. And so you tend not to notice the years on them other than some gray here and there. Mm. But with young Octavian, we knew that we had to get him to the stage of being emperor and the departure of Mark Antony. We knew at some point we needed an adult in there. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. So can I ask you, writing a show that's based so closely on history, and you said you had, by the sounds of it, a bit of a crash course beforehand uh, from uh, Roman historians, which comes off in the show. How much research did you find yourself doing? And, and was there things that happened in history that you wanted to include in the show that you were unable to? That's a good question. As I said, we did about three to four months of pure research. And we broke it down into, you know, learning about the sexual mores of Rome, mm. the religion of Rome the battlements of Rome, the Caesars of Rome. We try, you know, we read all the classic literature, you know, Suetonius and Plautus, and we read a lot of Cicero. And then we would have, you know, meetings, we'd all get together, the four writers, and we would talk about what we read and what rose to the surface. For example, after reading about Cicero and how he didn't have the courage to even give his own speeches uh, to his colleagues, that he had someone else read the speech, his attack on Antony was done essentially virtually. Mm. He was far away in his home in Ostia, where he had someone else read the speech on the floor of the Senate. And in reading his writing, we just thought, what an ass. <laughs> and there was a certain liberation to say, wow, Cicero, this famous character from history, is an ass. Well, let's portray him as that. You know, he can be both brilliant and be obnoxious or cowardly. Mm -hmm. And so we decided, you know, in that case, like, 
we are writers, let's take the liberty of portraying what we think this character is, because as we all know, the books of history are not a reliable guide to how people were. Every historian had an axe to grind or a team to cheer for. And so no one can truly trust the portrayal of those characters as we have read them. And so we thought, well, by doing our own research, we're as entitled as anyone to interpret those characters. Mm. So I think that part was, was, you know, obviously fun for us to kind of sort of reimagine what was Cleopatra like, you know, how is Mark Antony different from Brutus and, and all of those kind of character details. As far as the events of the story itself, I think they were more or less self-explanatory to us when we laid things out. We were looking at large battle scenes and political divisions and when they happened. And because we also decided the stories of Pulo and Varinus were equally, if not more important to us and to our viewers, we didn't feel necessarily as tied to the, the large political moves of Octavian as Augustus and more interested in what else was going on within the texture of Rome. And so we built this whole story of the gangs of Rome, mm. the forerunners to the mafia. We also, and I, and I will take a little bit of personal pride and credit in that I became fascinated with um, the stories of Herod and his involvement and his visits to Rome yeah. and his patronage. And so we decided as a group, but again, partly at my, uh, my pushing, that we really build up the story of Timon, the, what we call it, an accolade or whatever, of Attia, who is at her disposal, her henchman. And the whole story about his brother coming from the Holy Land and the assassination attempt. And that was something that I was very passionate about. I wanted to see that there were Jews in Rome at that time, which there were. Julius Caesar had been raised in largely a Jewish community um, and that they were many of his backers early on in his climbing career. And so we thought using the story of Timon and his brother Levi, who incidentally is named after my son, Levi, um, <laughs> who was a baby at the time, we thought that was a great way of sort of getting at those kind of textural stories that aren't something that you find typically in history books. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, well let me ask you a couple of questions then about that storyline in particular, because I feel that that, while it was interesting and great to get a bit more texture to the character of Timon, who was very much just a, a periphery character in the first season, I feel that that was setting him up for more especially uh, in your second episode, I believe, or maybe uh, in between, uh, he packs up with his family and leaves to go to Jerusalem. And I thought, okay, there's a thread that could have been picked up later on in the show. Honestly, I can't remember all of our deliberations about those storylines. Mm. I do remember, though, that we wanted to test his religious faith because he was not a religious character. Mm. And so we wanted to sort of put his his character on on sort of his own emotional trial about who he was and what he stood for because he was willing to do the most heinous things. And and was it because of his brother's presence um, and accusations that he finally finds a conscience and stands up to Asia, not willing to become, you know, the animal that he believes that she sees him as, mm. you know, as a Jew, he, he was not quite as human as her. He got to stand up to Atia in this episode. The torture scenes were really interesting. And, and what you've done with Atia in this, she's involved in two very different torture scenes in this episode. Uh, one is with Sevilla, who I feel more sorry for with every passing episode. 
the the other was a slave at the start of the episode as well. As, as, right. Yeah, the slave. Duro. Got... I think his name is Duro, Duro or Duro's lover. I don't remember the name. Duro, you are right. His name's Duro, uh, the, the young kind of smooth um, playboy kind of slave uh, who got caught trying to poison Atia. Uh, so is there a way that you approach those two scenes differently be- just simply because of who was being tortured? Oh, boy, you test my memory. The torture of the slave, you know, obviously had to yield, you know, results, the betrayal of Sevilla behind the plot. Um, but I remember that a very important part of that scene was having uh, Atia's daughter, Octavia, come into the scene with her friend mm. and see a side of her mother that she had not really seen before. And so we wanted to make sure that, I think the friend, I think the friend, if I remember, you know, vomits and... She you know, does. Can't deal with it, right. <laughs> and so I think a lot of it was about that interaction, not just about getting the truth out of, out of that character Duro. Mm. The second torture scene, I think if I remember, we went through a bunch of different versions of what that would be. And I think we ended up opting for the most simple version, although we allude to the fact that she is raped by multiple men. My mother wasn't happy about seeing my name on that for that reason um but obviously you know we wanted to represent the most humiliation for a patrician character like civilian Mm. and that is obviously mostly shown off camera as in you see the reaction of different slaves in the household to the noise of civilian being tortured which is a, a tactful way rightly so of showing such a thing happen to a person yeah yeah, I don't know if to, by today's standards if we would have succeeded in showing that scene as even as we did, because we're much more sensitive to those stories, I think, now than we were 13 years ago. Do you think so? I mean, again, it would be revisionist, because it's not like those things didn't happen in ancient Rome. Mm. Uh, we know that those things and many worse things were visited upon all kinds of people, you know, in torture. But I do think the standards of television today you know, may have made us think twice about how, you know, how we actually pull that off. There's also very much a, a difference between uh, network television, cable television, and I guess streaming, which wasn't around back then as well. So depending right. on where, what, what um, platform you're writing for, right. I guess it shows what you can portray as well. Can I ask how you looked at slaves in the writing of Rome? Because you've got uh, very different slaves at different levels of society. You've got uh, freed slaves, for example, you've got Pullo's wife and how she acts towards other slaves, uh, particularly, I believe her name is Gaia, who works in the bar there. You've got the freed slave, Posca. Posca, it been Caesar's uh, slave, right? E- exactly, exactly. And then you've got um, things like, uh, you know, Duro working in the house of Atia and uh, the slave who worked in the kitchen and was initially the victim of the poisoning, which was at the start of your episode. So all, all these ways that, uh, that slaves interact with the households and even the different, you know, politics and hierarchies within their little society, I guess. I think it really all emanated from the idea that we wanted Rome to be a story of upstairs, downstairs. Mm, yeah. Unlike I, Claudius, which was really the story of the emperors and their family members, they, if I recall, they didn't really humanize any of the slaves um, and so I think from the very beginning, the, even the first concept of the show, which really came from writer John Milius, was to follow Pulo and Varinus. They're the only soldiers, I believe, mentioned in Caesar's diaries. 
and that's where they came from. So the idea of following the grounds people while we follow the royalty, I think we carried that through to be able to look at the lives of slaves and to humanize that world and understand what it meant to be a slave. Obviously, a lot of it is conjecture, some of it based a little bit on the way slavery worked in the colonies with house slaves and field slaves and, you know, everybody having a different level of stature with the families. Mm. So in that way, you know, we, we, and we knew that if we were going to have relationships or romances for Pulo or for Varinus, they had to find people of their station in life or people proximate station of life, you know, because that's what was available to them. And therefore we, we looked to the slaves as, as sort of part of that opportunity. Mm. Um, but I remember the discussion about the Gaia character because we wanted a powerful female uh, to be among the slaves. And we wanted to see that the gangs, you know, did have occasionally did have strong women uh, roles. And, and so we, we went for it with her. The other slaves, I don't remember too much other than our sort of understanding, of course, is that so many slaves, many of them Greeks, truly were educated and were teachers and poets and songwriters and were really very much part of the household and their upbringing of the Romans. It was, we know the Romans were infatuated with the Greeks and modeled themselves on the Greeks. Mm. And so Pasca in particular, you know, was a way of showing that, that they could blend in, that the Greeks could be considered almost the same as a Roman. Thanks very much to Todd for that interview. So the beginning of this episode follows on from the cliffhanger of the previous episode in which we've got a slave and her name is Althea, who works in the kitchen bringing Atia's soup to her. The soup has been poisoned by another slave who's working for Sevilia. That slave is named Duro, and he's inserted himself into Atia's household with the mission, the task of killing Atia for a large amount of money. Althea brings in the soup, uh, has a taste of it on her way, which some people might have missed, just a, a bit of a finger dip, which is apparently enough to kill somebody quite mm, it's brutally. It's strong poison. Yeah, well... She places it in front of Atia. Atia doesn't eat it, but instead requests a song. And we now get a song called The Crown of Sappho, which was in Latin. Was that a poem at all that we know of? It's very definitely a poem. Okay. Because uh, I sometimes can't hear what they're saying, which I put down to their enunciation and not my ears. No, I'm sure their enunciation's fine. I had the captions on and uh, it said sings in Latin. (laughs) It was not Latin, it was Greek. It is a Greek poem by Sappho. It's the only one we have all of from Sappho. Mostly we have fragments. It's called Fragment One. Is Crown of Sappho a better title? No, I don't think I've heard it called that. Okay. It's the poem asking Aphrodite to come help in her love affair. It invokes Helen from the Iliad. It's a very beautiful poem. Yeah. I've linked it in here if you want to look at it. That's uh, not helpful in a podcast. (laughs) No, but I thought you might want to look at it and read some out. Cheers. Okay. Oh, yeah. You want me to butcher Greek. I've already butchered Latin this episode. (laughs) It's in translation. It's a beautiful translation. Anyone who's read any Sappho might know this. It's the one that starts, Deathless Aphrodite of the Spangled Mind. This is the translation by Anne Carson, I should say. I'm not going to read all of it. Uh, Child of Zeus. uh, Which bit did she sing? Do you know? It was the beginning. Okay. Child of Zeus, who twists lures, I beg you, do not break with hard pains, O lady, my heart. But come here, if ever before, you caught my voice far off and listening left your father's golden house and came. I'm not going to sing this. And then I die of poisoning. 
I thought it was a nice touch then if she's singing it in the Greek. Yeah, and, and her uh, name Althea suggests that she's a Greek slave. Yeah. It's a Greek name. Yeah, I thought it was lovely. And I thought the way that they had said it, which there is some research in what Greek and Roman music and song might have sounded like, but mm. it's very difficult to know. And she's doing it without any instruments. Part of the point is that these poems that we think of as poems were songs to them, especially yeah. poems like Sappho's, which is lyric poetry, literally meant to be sung to a lyre. So it was a lovely moment before a horrible death moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My question about her tasting the soup, I mean, that could have happened anyway, but would Atia have had a taster? Was she of that level of society and was that a common thing about that time? I mean, you know, if you ever had Nero around for dinner, you would always want a taster with you. But that's a kind of later Julia Claudian. We do thing. hear about it more in the Julio Claudian court yeah. and beyond. Artia, if she's being portrayed here as quite so involved in these kind of machinations, then I say she'd be wise to have one. Yeah. <laughs> um, it didn't come over to me that that's what Althea was doing. She was having a sneaky taste. Yeah, yeah. It was just a little, you know, oh, let's see what the rich people are eating. So anyway, she dies and Duro. The other slave, the slave who actually poisoned it, is unwisely watching in the doorway to see what happened <laughs> and is uh, quickly identified and caught. Hmm. Atia now tortures him, saying that she needs to torture him in order to get a confession, hmm. in order for going after Sevilla to be legal. Yeah, she explains that to Octavia, who's horrified. Hmm. And maybe too much knowledge spoiled this for me. But yes, that was the legal procedure in both Greek states and in Rome. Yeah. And it does puzzle people. But slaves are so unreliable, perhaps, or so devoted to their households, the Roman state thinks. They need to be tortured for it to be legal. Octavia would definitely know that. So having her explain it to Octavia seemed like a bit of, oh, let's have exposition. But I guess... Oh, yeah, that know, was for the, the benefit of the audience. The audience wouldn't know that. I, I also don't think Artia needs an excuse to torture a slave. She mm. strikes me as a bit, you know, portrayed in that way. Sadistic. Yeah, there we go. And she tells Timon after she gets the confession to dispose of Duro discreetly, which doesn't strike me as something that you'd need to do with a slave. And actually, if I was Artia, not that I am that sadistic and artier, I would actually publicly crucify him to kind of send a message to Sevilla. Well, she wants to catch Sevilla unawares in this narrative. You know, this is not something that the episode goes into, but the legal status of Duro should be at play here because if he belongs to Sevilla, mm. then he is Sevilla's property. So what Artia is doing is illegal. Because Duro has no legal standing at all, except that Servilia could sue for damage to her property. Yeah. So the fact that he is in Artia's household, on the face of it, of course, we know Servilia's sent him. It's extremely nefarious. But he shouldn't be in her household, and Servilia could claim him back. So in fact, that whole legal narrative doesn't work for me once I start thinking it through, which I only have done at this particular moment. I have to say, while I was watching it, I wasn't thinking that. But yeah, Servilia could have Artia up for damage to her property. Another aspect of these kind of slave politics here is that Artia was kind of well within her rights to punish her entire household of slaves, I guess, if this was one slave who was acting out against her. Well, that's right. You know, we have that famous case of all of the slaves of a household being killed because of a successful, in quotation marks, murder of uh, the head of the household. Yes. So as an attempt had been made on her life, yeah, she could do a, a root and branch clear out. Yeah. And there is one senior slave 
the bald-headed guy who brought Juro into the household. He kisses Ati's feet and, and requests, essentially, punishment for his part in bringing Duro into the house. I liked also that he was wearing, like, a sign of ownership, like a metal sign around his neck. Yeah, That's he's wearing a slave be. collar. A slave collar. And I think he has been throughout. Yeah. I guess that is a sign of Ati's power and the fact that she does wield that power over her household. Mm. And they know that. They know that they have to appease her. Uh, she's portrayed, isn't she, as very unpredictable. Yeah. Like she might well just have him killed off or she might well just can't be bothered, which is what she essentially ends up doing. Pretty here. much can't be bothered, yeah. The life of a slave is just at her whim. Tymon disposes of Duro, but seems a bit conflicted about it. We now get a scene which is a continuation of the development of his character that we've seen in this series and so far in which he is having a kind of crisis of identity almost. He's feeling very conflicted about the things that he is doing for Atia, but he's also being quite stubborn about it when he gets home. So I have a question for you here. Do you think that he's being portrayed as someone who's being forced to think about these violent acts he's committing for Artia because of his brother's presence, because he's got somebody there who's reminding him of his Jewish tradition and roots? Is that connection going on or is it just that Timon is tired of doing all of this? I think awful- it's both. He feels like he should get more respect from Artia Mm -hmm. because he's not a slave Mm -hmm. and he feels like he's doing these almost as an obligation, as a favour. He's being paid quite well, apparently, well enough to keep doing them. But I think his brother coming along and his brother having reformed his character due to religion because, you know, he says that his brother was a bit of a deadbeat and not wise with money and everything like that. And his brother seems to have turned himself around at the moment on the surface. That seems to be what's happening there. Mm -hmm. And as a result, he's all kind of conflicted about what he's doing. It might have happened anyway, even if his brother didn't turn up, but that's certainly part to play in it. I'm not quite sure how to feel about that. I feel like I don't know enough about the kind of morality that might have been attached to Jewish identity. Mm. I guess there's certainly... In Judea, there are certainly people who would see you as a traitor for kowtowing to the Romans. Yes. Technical term there. The way this is played out, it just seems a little bit more than other aspects of the series inflected with our current context. I think a bit of Christian morality. Or even just like immigrant just politics on as well. It. Yeah, that too. And I feel like that's maybe slightly unfair on Rome. And I don't think their record with the Jews is not great in Judea. On the other hand, I don't think we get a strong indication of prejudice within Rome itself. Mm. There's the occasional little dig within a satire, juvenile satires, which are from the second century, but there's not a lot of indication of the kind of prejudice that immigrants might experience in Western countries in the 21st century. No, and, and in the show's defense, you know, Timon isn't really subject to those sort of prejudices either mm. in the show. But it's sort of implied here, don't you think, when his brother says, you walk these fetid streets, speak its mongrel language, but you're not Roman. Yeah. I think there's implied that you're not being treated as equal to them. I mean, you could be Jewish and be Roman. It's not clear to me whether Timon has citizenship and he could have citizenship. There's no bar on that. I thought it was more of a, you know, you're better than this because he's come home covered in blood. Mm. Very dismissive of the fact that his children are there and he's showing them this. Mm. 
and his brother's sitting there at the head of the table acting like a father should be engaging with the children. That doesn't help Tyron's mood. That wouldn't help my mood if I saw that. (laughs) I I do think also this episode imports a lot of modern views about children and the place of fathers in the family. Mm, That it's difficult to know whether those kinds of uh, dynamics would have fitted at Rome. I don't think there's strong evidence that they would. Mm. So this idea that you protect children from seeing brutality... I don't get any indication of that in our sources. Admittedly, they're not that interested in talking about children in the main. There is a whole lot of debate about, you know, when the idea of childhood is created. Mm. And it certainly exists to a certain extent at Rome because you go through a ritual to be grown up yeah, at yeah. a certain age, which is different for girls and boys. But yeah, that idea of protecting them from, I mean, there's a lot of brutality in Rome. You, yeah. you take children to the arena. I mean, we, we've seen it in this episode. Uh, there, there's a lot of brutality towards children. We saw it in a previous episode. Was it? We've seen it in the previous episode to this one where uh, Varinus was quite dismissive of the boy who had been used for sex. Mm. I think that was two episodes ago. I don't know. I could be wrong. In a previous episode. A previous episode, yeah. yes. And, you know, we will see it more as, as this episode develops. Shall we now move to the uh, quotation fingers, Battle of Mutina? Mm. <laughs> I think we got more signs of a battle than we've often had before, actually, because uh, of the body parts and piles of bodies. Yeah, yeah. Which So the Battle of Mutina was a historical battle that mm. had happened. We get a bit of exposition from the newsreader here. He says that uh, troops who were being led by Hirtius and Panzer who were involved in this battle, both did die in this battle, and were the consuls for that year, led troops up and fought against Antony. Octavian Mm. was there too. (laughs) I don't know if that's uh, giving him more or less credit than he should have, but that's how this episode kind of portrays it as well. The newsreader refers to Antony as a traitor, Mm. which is a a very loaded word Mm. to be said in what I view as an official news broadcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He had been declared an enemy of the state. And so this battle is in April 43. Yeah. And that's the point at which, and Cicero has been pushing for it for a long time, they finally do call him a hostess, an enemy. Oh, so so that's that's fine. Yeah, that, that goes through the Senate. In the eyes of the Senate, what's left of the Senate... He is a traitor because he has demanded a province that's not his. Mm. He's demanded Decimus Brutus's province. And as you already mentioned, Decimus Brutus has been sort of whitewashed out of this. Yeah. Too complicated, too many characters. He wants Cisalpine Gaul because it's close at hand. And he's been sent east instead. And because the Senate won't change its mind, he just marches there. Mm. Decimus Brutus kind of comes south to meet him and they they meet up at Mutina and Decimus is besieged there by Antony. Mm. So it's the Senate and Octavian, who at the moment is very much on the Senate side and Cicero's side, who are acting against Antony. Yes, yes. And he loses that battle very badly. (laughs) All of that is more complicated than it needed to be for this television show. So they've just gone, no Decimus Brutus, just, you know, they had a battle. They had a battle at Mutina. Here's the battlefield. Here's the outcome. Yeah. And then we see Pullo walking through the battlefield because he's looking for Varinus. Varinus went with Mark Antony at the end of the last episode, Mm. all happened off screen, wants to tell Varinus how your children are alive and they're in slavery. We need to go and deal with that. So he's searching the battlefield, not paying a hell of a lot of attention. He turns over one body. But anyway, he's searching quite an extensive battlefield for Varinus. And then 
yeah, a bunch of horses come up and it's the now grown up Octavian. Mm. This is not on point with Octavian, but you want to know the part of this where my heart was in my mouth. Mm. There was a body amongst the heaps of bodies that looked a little bit like Posca, and I thought Posca had been killed. Oh, wow. In the context of the show, he was there. Yeah, yeah. He was at that battle. He turns up later, thank <laughs> goodness, so I'm relieved, because he has some of the best lines in it. He's my almost my favourite character after Brutus, I think. Even though he's not a slave anymore, he's a bit too uppity. <laughs> he is. He is too uppity. I mean... But- Anyway, we'll get to Posca later. But yeah. no, no Posca there. So new Octavian. I'm, I'm still going to refer to him as Octavian. Sorry. I think that's fair enough. Yeah, it's yeah. very confusing to call him Caesar. Yeah. And also, as you can see, there is a little bit of back and forth about what other people call him, mm. which seems to have been true at the time as well. With, yeah, yeah. Whether they dignified him with his new name, Caesar, or not. Yeah. No, I, I enjoyed that interaction. This actor is now a guy named Simon Woods. And it essentially seemed like they thought, okay, we need to age up Octavian Mm -hmm. to make him more of a credible threat to have more interaction with Mark Antony one-on-one as the rest of the season slash show develops past this point. We can't have little Max Perkis. As good as he was, I liked him quite a lot, being Octavian and a general on the battlefield. I thought that was a bit disappointing. As far as I've seen from this episode, Simon Woods is absolutely fine, but mm. it's only been a year. If you were going to go strictly with the chronology, which, of course, I freely admit a show doesn't have to, yeah. but if you were going with the historical chronology, it's only been a year. He's now, what, 43 BCE, he's 20. Yeah. So, I mean, I think Max Perkins could have got away with 20. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Not to the extent where they would need to go, okay, we seriously need to recast this guy. Simon Woods looks older than 20. Mm. But I think that's maybe why they've done it, because they just want to mark that change in experience and confidence. Mm. Having engaged in battle in whatever minor way is really given us a whole new Octavian. Yeah, yeah. And it's a little bit interesting as well that they chose to do it at this point. I'm wondering if it was always part of the intention to do that. I'd say that it might have been. But the last time we saw Octavian was a couple of episodes ago mm. and he goes off to, I want to say, Capua? No, he doesn't. I can't remember what the show does, but it's mm. not where he actually... It's not where he should be. Should be have, ...has gone to gather troops. Anyway, he's gone away to gather troops. Yeah. I mean, that's the important thing. Campania. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was, yeah, exit stage left. Mm-hmm. And then he comes back as Simon Woods. So this is a reintroduction. It was good that Pullo almost seemed you know, momentarily confused yeah. that this as well was was young master. <laughs> There's a little bit of um, meta-narrative going on there, isn't there? Is yeah, it you? yeah. <laughs> so the audience gets to be told that this is Octavian, which we need to know. Yeah, yeah. And he is very modest about his part in the victory. Uh, heard his some panzer led mm. the troops. My good old friend Agrippa, no proof that he was at this event, is also given some credit. And uh, he's very modest about his own part that he played in it. Which So nothing that we know from later on, and of course the main document we have of Augustus telling his deeds is his epitaph, the Rays Gestae, the achievements of the divine Augustus, mm. tells us that Octavian Augustus would have been modest about anything. He claimed the credit for these battles. He will get the triumphs yeah. when they eventually come. Not here, though. <laughs> so... That did not strike true to me, but that's the way they've decided to portray him. And maybe that was a way of telling us that Octavian actually 
wasn't that involved in the battle. Mm. They did. They told us through him. It might have been more interesting to have soldiers muttering in the background. Oh, he's taken the credit for. We did all the work, and you know, Hertius and Panzer, who were dead, they did all the work. I feel that the only character who could have credibly got away with that was maybe. We don't see him now, but later on there's a general, an officer lounging around in Octavian's tent criticising everything he does. That guy strikes me as he might have got away with that sort of thing. So you mean Mycenae? Yeah. 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 We now get uh, what I've called in the notes Caesar's War Council, and by that I mean Octavian in his tent uh, plotting what he's going to be doing next, and he writes a couple of letters. I see this as almost like the successor to those sort of scenes that we got during the Civil War Mm. episodes way back when Pompey would sit there with... Uh, Brutus and um, Cato and oh, I'm, I'm getting all nostalgic for the <laughs> for everyone who's now. You want the older generation for back. everyone who's now I mean, dead. Oh, except for yeah. Brutus. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it started out with Caesar in Gaul, didn't it? In, I in guess. Yeah. And then we moved to the civil. So we've kind of got it punctuated. Yeah. The, the wars are shown by these war council scenes. So as a bit of a uh, a sounding board. Octavian has a gripper who we have previously met, played by young Tom from Downton Abbey. And he also has Gaius Mycenas. Mm. We are introduced to this new guy who strikes me as a kind of young lush. And I mean lush as in the halfway to drunk kind of lush. He's just lounging around. Yeah. Do we get him called Mycenas? I can't remember whether I had to look it up in the cast. I can't remember whether I had to look it up in the cast. I think he's not actually named yet. Mm. Or it would have been right at the end of the scene if he was. Anyway, it is Mycenas. And he is, he's a real character as well. And was a long-standing ally of Octavian Augustus. And I think the reason he's portrayed like this is because he's best known as a patron of the arts, particularly poets. Mm -hmm. So um, the poets Propertius and Horace and Virgil. And... Propertius gives some kind of indication that Mycenas was there at this battle and also at Philippi and also at Actium. Oh, interesting. He doesn't say it directly. It's, yeah. If people want to look it up, it's um, Propertius Book 2, Poem 1, which is dedicated to Mycenas, his patron. He talks a lot, Propertius, about how he's not going to write epic. He's not going to write about battles. But if he were going to, then he'd write about Yeah, that's more or less what he's saying there, that <laughs> these battles are pertinent to Mycenas. So it's not a direct you were there being a general or fighting, but mm. it is implied. Maybe it's that connection with the arts that they want to portray him as a kind of lounging about laid back character mm. rather than a hard bitten general. Yeah. A gripper is the one we know of as as being much more directly involved in the armed conflict and taking control of that. But Mycenas had this reputation, particularly later on, so say in the works of Seneca, Seneca the Younger, so he's around under Nero in the, the mid-first century CE, as somebody who was kind of extravagant, a bit luxurious, mm. a bit dubious morally. Had some famous gardens. He did have famous <laughs> gardens. And, but and you'll like this. Seneca describes him as discinctus, unbelted. <laughs> which I can't remember where that, where that came up for us recently. Uh, that was in, um, uh, for those of you who want to jump across to the other podcast, that was an episode of Emperors of Rome where yeah. we were talking about the forming of the Second Triumvirate and uh, Lepidus runs out naked to confront Mark It's not naked. It's just unbelted. <laughs> but for the Romans, it seems to have been a sign of 
uh, effeminacy in yeah. men, some kind of dubious, just letting it all hang out kind of yeah, um, lack yeah. of morality. I see no difference. <laughs> <laughs> and this is this is contested, but it's part of his reputation. He also claimed that he was descended from Etruscan kings. Okay. So that seems to be built into his name. And they themselves were often associated with luxury and extravagance mm. and decadence. From the Roman point of view, it seems to be based on the fact that they had a lot of wealth at a time that the Romans didn't, yeah. so before the Romans had an empire. So all of that might be going into this depiction of Mycenaeus. It'd be interesting to see how he develops if we're going to see him again. That all seems to tally up almost. Should he be in a soldier's uniform? I kind of saw that and I've gone, eh, mm, mm. we don't know. Well, we don't know. I mean, basically, okay. we, we've just got that little indication from Propertius that he might have been there. Yeah, okay, all right. Uh, he, he strikes me as a, um, at this point, non-aggressive Mark Antony, that kind of, you know, yes, yes. And, demeanor. And I think that sort of fits with the way they've been depicting Antony in terms of the way that his that sources depict him. Yeah. They might be hostile sources, but that's that's the way he comes over okay. in later sources. We've now given him more analysis than the episode does. No, he's a really important character. Oh, no, I'm not saying that, but, you know, as far as the episode goes. <laughs> Octavian writes a couple of letters, one to his sister, deliver this to her hand only. My mother has a habit of intercepting mail, which we have seen her do Mm-mm. in this series. Oh, he knows his mum well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And give this one to Cicero. Uh, this one to Cicero, Agrippa, has the demands, the demands, the requests. Mm, the I think demands is a good word. The heavy-handed inference that I would quite like a triumph. And money. And money. Money uh, for the troops. Yes. And then I, he I goes did, and does a speech. Yeah, I, I quite liked, and I have no idea how realistic this is, but Octavian saying, which speech shall I give them? <laughs> and and is it Agrippa? Who's, no, no, is it Mycenaeus? No, it's Mycenaeus who goes, the money speech. The money speech. Yeah. And look, Mycenaeus, what we know about him is that he was a very close advisor of Octavian. I should also mention that even though we've said he was there, mm. I, I knew you think we've talked enough about Mycenaeus, he very clearly rejected any kind of official position. In Octavian's government, he did, didn't he? Yeah, yeah and yeah. he's he's an equestrian. Yeah. So although he's made he's and he stays wealthy, that rank, no he, senator, no, he, yeah, yeah, and he must have been offered that. Oh yeah, yeah, friends with benefits. Oh, did no, not want that it. sounds wrong. No, anyway, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, the yeah that he he's decided to have the influence, but not the. Not the rank. Not the honours. No, he doesn't want that stress. Oh, good on him. I think he's right. We need more patron. We we need a patron of podcasts, really. (laughs) Yes, please. (laughs) (laughs) We need patrons. Okay, so uh, Caesar gives those letters to Agrippa and then goes and gives the money speech. And this, this tallies. We've got records of this, you know, not word for word what he tells his troops. Quite a good speech that he tells his troops, but he does give his troops the money speech. Like, you know, Rome owes us. Let's go and get our money, boys. Yeah, I haven't been and checked this, but I believe that's in Appian. I checked it. Yeah. 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 Um, which, you know, we, we know this is not specifically Appian, but we know these speeches were largely confected by the historian who writes them. Yeah. But if possible, they reflect the sense of what the general did or may have given. The mood in the air. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so Antony's remnants. Antony mm. has lost 8,000 men, but he still has Posca. Oh, thank God. <laughs> Pullo finds Varinus. Varinus actually goes and asks for permission to desert. Mm. Well, not essentially deserting then, I guess. He asks for permission from Antony to go. Antony gives it because at this point, what's one more good man who mm. leaves my side after this battle? 
I was really interested in the special position that Polo and Varenas seem to have for both commanders here. Mm. It, it's not terribly realistic, but they have very strongly sort of suggested ever since Caesar encountered them that because they have luck on their side, remember Caesar said, you know, you don't go against Fortuna, mm. that they've sort of been in a special category. How sympathetic would Octavian be to going to find somebody who'd fought on the other side, which is what Varinus is essentially? How sympathetic would Antony be to letting one of his good men go? Really? I'm going to disagree with you if you can call it that, because we know that Mark Antony has uh, prided himself of being a hands-on general who mm-hmm. has been close to his soldiers, and Varinus and Polo have been with them and intertwined quite notably with things that have been going on since Gaul. So he's known these guys for years. He's Mm -hmm. known Varinus for years. And I can see that as him once again letting Varinus have something that he wants, Mm -hmm. but Varinus knows that he owes Mark Antony as a result. Ah, so you think that he's storing up loyalty for later. Definitely, yeah, you owe me. And as for Octavian being okay with Pullo going after Mark Antony's troops and everything, we know from Appian that around this time he makes concessions to the remnants of Antony's Mm. troops that are still in the area, almost as a kind of a, I want to make amends with Antony kind of way because I can see us wanting to be allies. We actually get quotes where Appian says, you know, he lets any of Antony's men that are still in the area go back to Antony unmolested. And this could be an extension of that. I'm saying that this all gels fine. Okay. Yeah. I mean, part of what, and I think it's in Dio, part of what's going on with Octavian after this battle is that he recruits some of the remnants of Antony's men. So he that's does. A, that's he a does. reason for him to keep them alive as well. It's yeah, very self-interested. these are technically Caesar's veterans. Yeah, exactly. Which is what Varinus and Polo are. And I guess all of this is really contextualizing and working out what happens with Romans fighting Romans. Mm. So it's not absolute in the way it might be with fighting a foreign enemy. Interestingly, Mark Antony does not have a Gaul plan, which is what he had in the sources at this point. I'm going to Gaul because that's where Caesar essentially made his army congeal, made him famous, gathered troops. Mm -hmm. He can go there. He can get a bigger army at his back. He seems to have none of that in place. Yeah, the way they play Antony... I mean, it's great for the drama, but it's very hot and cold, isn't it? Mm. That he he's either all over it and very kind of proactive and he wants to be active or something bad happens and he's just disconsolate and it all falls apart. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and um, it's and like, he's kind of straddling both of yeah, those areas in yeah. the scene. I think I remember this rightly, that he says that he wants to be in Gaul before the first snows. But yeah. it's only April. I think that that's also... How long is it going to take him? Maybe he's the tortoise. (laughs) (laughs) I think that that's also just to do with the fact that, you know, they've just been beaten. They need to be somewhere. They're heading that way. I mean, they don't tell us it's April. That's Mm. just me being a pedant. (laughs) Quick scene with Cassius and Brutus. Mm, Good to see Not long enough. Mm. Good to see that they've pulled their act together, though. Yep, definitely, because we left Brutus in that, I guess, something analogous to the position Antony's in, feeling really desolate. Mm. I thought it was interesting that they dropped in uh, Cassius saying to Brutus, maybe trying to get him more energized, even more, saying he looks great in his armor and he should have a portrait made, which Brutus doesn't really 
give much He says it'd make my mother happy. Yeah, (laughs) Yes, it would, wouldn't it? But we do know that he put out coins, so I suppose that's a kind of portrait. Some of his coins had his head on them. Some of them had his ancestor, the Brutus who freed Rome and made the Republic. The one with his head, I think, has Ides of March written on it and daggers on the other side. So very much associating himself as an assassin, as a tyrannicide. Uh, Oh, Sevilla. Okay. So Sevilla is abducted while praying. Mm. I thought it was interesting that her slaves just kind of quickly vacated. I don't know if they were, were they slaves or were they attendants at the shrine? Because she's praying to Isis. So I wasn't sure if it was meant to be in a temple to Isis, to be honest. Potentially. That'd make more sense because you'd think that, you know, her slaves had die before they let her Well, in theory. Yeah. Yeah. And they'd sort of picked extras who looked slightly exoticized, Mm. I think, which people often associate with attendants of ISIS. I don't know if that was, I don't know if there was me layering that on or if the, the series was trying to do that. I think maybe they're making this look even worse because she's at, at worship. Yeah. And that would be kind of a terrible, impious act to yeah. drag her away from a temple or a shrine. You take Sevilla when you can get her. She is taken to the earlier scene torture dungeon. Does Artia just have one of these in her house? Clearly, because yeah, Octavia, Octavia comes, comes, in. comes back uh, Not normal in, in a Roman house, I'd have said. Mm. Maybe it's a makeshift torture mm. dungeon. So this is a, the, a really vile scene, which I did not enjoy at all. I, I hope we weren't meant to. And it did make me think, you know, you were referring earlier to whether Artia would have a taster, people mm. protecting her because she knows she's in danger. I would have said by this stage, Servilia should have guards around her at every stage. Yeah. Don't you think she's got the money to do it? Mm-hmm. She could just pay some time and equivalent and a bunch of men to be her heavies. That's what I would have done. Yeah, that's a bit... Mm. Anyway, sorry, I've got, I've put us off course there. It's it's, no, no, the, no. it's what I wanted to see. It's not what happened. You know, no, you, no, no. You review the series you've seen, not the one you wanted. You're you're right. You're right. So Sevilla is very defiant and says that uh, Artia will regret this torture mm. until the pretty much the end of her days, which mm. I think is a complete misreading of Artia. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I think you're right. You know, I think it's interesting what they're doing with Artia here, and I don't know if they care about what people know or don't know because Artia has been. I think I mentioned all this time, Artia, she's married, she's got a husband. Yeah. (laughs) So this is not the Artia of history. But because of that, I did wonder whether they were going to poison her at that point Mm. to get her out of the way. And I think it's very much up for grabs now. They're sort of freewheeling with both Artia and Servilia. They're not going by what little we know of how long they lived and, and what their acts were. But I did think that Servilia here is very much in line with what we know of her family. So both she and Brutus are going to be kind of defiant against the Julian family yeah. in both cases. Yeah. They will sacrifice themselves if necessary. She's not going to give way to torture. She's tough. Well, by the same extent, I'm surprised that they didn't just kill her off this episode, you know, off camera, of course, mm-hmm. but have her die and have that be the escalation of what Timon's going through. You know, I've had to do it yet again. Mm. But as it is, he cuts her down once the torture mm-hmm. gets too much for him. And Atia orders her face cut off. Was mm-hmm. that? The- yeah, that was a lovely moment. Timon cuts her down, yells at Atia, hand on the throat kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, and releases Sevilla. And I liked the development that Timon is showing, but I think it robbed Sevilla slash Atia at the same time. 
In what way? Oh, just so, you know, personally, I couldn't see another way out of that scene unless Artia got bored and mm. just, you know. She's not going to get bored with Sevilla. She yeah. wants her gone. And Sevilla is not going to escape without help. So, yeah, I guess, sure. Yeah. No, no, no. I was, I was fine with it because I like how Tymon's character is developing. I would like to see Sevilla win for once, I think, is what I'm getting at. She has lost at every turn, hasn't she? She's yeah. been abused physically by Caesar way back when. She was mm. hit by him. Yeah. She's uh, suffered at the hands of Artia before, being stripped naked in the street. And now this is a real escalation of yeah. that. I do wonder whether they're building up to something with Servilia. I hope it's not just let's have another torture scene, that there is going to be a reason for this in the plot. Don't tell yeah. me if you remember. I think it's fine for us to say that where she ends up in this episode is, is being comforted by a slave and seeming to have a lot of trauma as a result of this, as she rightly would. But that insinuates that at some point, this is why I, I jested at the start, nuclear warfare, mm. this has got to escalate again, doesn't it? Because it's not over. <laughs> no, it's not over. But it's interesting to think about how it's going to play out if you know the barest bit of history. What, because... the Brutus is going to die sooner yeah. rather than later? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I've already said that, so I don't know why I'm skirting around it. In two episodes' time, the episode name is called Philippi. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is why we should have seen more of Brutus in the meantime. I wish they'd found more to do with Brutus. But yeah, is Servilia going to be able to take vengeance for what will happen with Brutus? I don't know. I like the way this series wants to place the women at the center of the action and give them more to do, give mm -hmm. them the motivation and that they interact with the politics of the time and they have their own motivations. This scene was not part of that that I enjoyed, though. Mm. It, it seemed like a, a step too far. Fair enough. But if it's building up to something interesting, then we shall see if, if we're going to see more of this power dynamic going on between these two powerful women. I think that's interesting. So Agrippa has two letters to deliver. He has some awkward flirting with Octavia. I've got a question mark after flirting because I don't know what I'd call that. Yeah, I think it was meant to be flirting on his part. Oh, dude. <laughs> I mean, he's a bad flirt. Yeah. But this seemed extremely unlikely to me just given the strictures around what should happen to these important women in important families sexually about them being placed for marriage. and Oh, yeah, this is your boss's sister. What are yeah. you doing? Yeah. Basically, it would need Octavian's permission. Mm. But I guess, as in all things, what we know about officially is is not to say that I mean, we know that people had, yeah. we had people had affairs. Yeah. One of the things I am finding unlikely about this, and well, we know what happened with Octavia and how she does get married off, but she's been a widow for most of this series, and that's that's oh. pretty unlikely. Yeah. I mean, um, most of both series, actually. Her husband was murdered early in the first series. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I can't remember if Octavian at some point talked about marrying her off. Well, Artia was going to marry her to Pompey, mm. if you remember way back when, which was something that was suggested. That's just kind of hanging around there. I mean, they must marry her off to Antony. Yeah. See, this is why I don't want this that, to go that on the podcast. happens in the history books, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It uh, should happen soon. It should happen in 40. Yeah. Next episode, second triumvirate, if episode six is Philippi. This is why I thought they might get rid of Artia, by the way. Mm. This doesn't need to stay in. Yeah, but yeah. so that because they've positioned Artia in a relationship with Antony, yeah. there's no way she would allow it or Octavian would have to railroad her, which I guess is possible. Octavian will railroad her. Mm. No, I can see that happening, mm. definitely. 
All right, so that awkward flirting takes place uh, very Downton Abbey, actually. Now it was a bit, it, wasn't yeah. it? Octavia is quite kind of bold and assertive here, though. Mm. She's not. She's not just going to accept what Octavian tells her to do. Yes, yes. She's, and mm. and Artie still gets the letter. <laughs> yeah, of course. Which I like. They also get the very welcome and apparently very unexpected news that Octavian won the Battle of Mutiny. Yeah, <laughs> nobody expected it. <laughs> no. Which I guess makes sense in terms of. Well, the Senate didn't expect it either, really. <laughs> In terms of Anthony being the experienced general. Yeah. yeah. Um, although Hurtius and Panza were there. so. And then he goes and gives the other letter to Cicero on the floor of the Senate because, of course, that's where you do those sort of things when you have that impressive set and you want to get your money's worth out of it, I guess. Cicero is very dismissive of Octavian, especially him now calling himself Caesar. Yeah, which is the part of... The letter, I think Cicero would have had the least problem with. Mm. Um, he didn't mention the triumph, did he? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, the dismissiveness is reflected in our sources. And I guess what we haven't seen is that Octavian has been led on by the Senate. He's been promised that he will get these things. He'll he'll get to be consul. He'll get these honours. He'll yeah. get money for his troops. I think we needed to see that. Then after he has taken part at Mutina, after his troops have won... They just take it all away. They give him a more minor honor. They give him an ovation, not a triumph, mm. which is, you know, a PR exercise. Yeah. And that means that he's been snubbed. Yeah. So he has a right to feel annoyed with them. On the other hand, he's only 20. Wait yeah. your turn, Octavian. But we should have seen that snubbing because it would have made more I, sense to him marching on Rome. I thought it was kind of implied, uh, maybe not as much as our sources give us, but... Our sources, you know, don't essentially imply it. They just, yeah, yeah. They but I thought it was imp- <laughs> you're right. But again, Cicero, he's not having any of what Octavian's asking for. That's probably enough for the series. It could have been simply an angry sentence in the speech that he gave to his troops. They promised me this. They have not done this. They uh, promised you this. They have not paid for this. <laughs> Off we go, boys. Money speech. Our <laughs> listeners are going to want your rewrite of this whole <laughs> remaking HBO Rome the mat way. I'll do that after I sing Crown of Sappho <laughs> in uh, fluent Greek. This episode finishes on the slave camp and we should just backtrack just slightly. We do get a on the road again scene with Varinus and Pullo in which they kind of make up, if you want to mm. call it that. Mm. Uh, grudgingly, I accept your presence, mm. Pullo, from Varinus. <laughs> I hope he's going to crack a smile before the end of the season. He's been through a lot, but, you know, yeah. No, he's been through a lot. We get an interesting reflective pullo mm. as well, uh, telling Varinus about what to expect mm. at the slave camps. And- you know, I hadn't thought of this while I was watching it. I don't know what this slave camp means. I don't know what they mean by that. You have slaves put up for sale at a slave market. Yes. And you have areas, situations, locations where slaves work. And that's like what a quarry. Is. That's what but this is. It's not called a slave camp. Maybe slave camp is me calling it No, they it call that it wrong. that. Oh, okay. okay. I'm pretty sure. Well, it's not a slave anything. It's a quarry where slaves are employed until they die because it's incredibly brutal. Maybe they need to give us the reminder that slaves are there and that's yeah. the reason that they're going I mean, there. It, it, if, they, if they just said, let's go to the quarry, well, they're going, what are they going to a quarry for? I mean, it's the mines. Yeah. This is what we're told was the worst fate for slaves. And a lot of slaves got sent to the mines. Like the vast it, majority were either working on a latifundia somewhere. Yeah. So or, on a farming estate. Ah, no, no, no. I was using the technically right Yeah, yeah I know. But <laughs> our listeners might not know. I was being smart. <laughs> or the Lautumii. 
which are the quarries. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the worst place to go, yeah. where your body will just be broken until you die. Yeah. So I don't know if they were referring to the sources so much as, for me, it was basically the opening scene of Spartacus. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Whips, chains, yeah. Off we go. Bit and that, that barren landscape that mm. didn't look very Italian to me, but I guess they've been mining it, so that's why it, it looks so dry and bare. Yeah, I mean, you go where the stone is. I like Pullo being all reflective uh, because it reminds us a few episodes ago, I think that he said that his mother was a slave, mm-hmm. so clearly he's grown up, he's familiar with these conditions. Besides being a, a, a Spartacus rehash, what did you think of the slave camp and, and those scenes that followed? So it was brutal in a way that I think... It should be expected. Yeah, those mines were brutal. Mm. And I like the way that it did both that, but showed us the awful conditions, the whipping, you know, the whipping even when a, a slave is dead, mm. the crucifixions. I'm not sure whether they would have happened on site, but maybe to show others what the punishment yeah. would be. If Make you, an example of them, yeah. sure. I don't think we have any information on this, but I guess having a brothel on site is... More than likely. Makes sense, unfortunately. And I guess that is a reference to Spartacus as well, which is, you know, they get these women brought to them, but he's not in the... He's not in the in the mines at that point. He's, he's become he's a, gladiator. a gladiator at that point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I doubt there would be sex workers for the mining workers. But no, I guess but for the overseers officials. and what have you, you got to mm. keep the lads in line, kind mm-hmm. of thing. Somebody mm. needs to wield that whip. Mm. It was distressingly probably realistic yeah i think that's a good way to phrase it the only thing and i really did like this and was you know relieved to see it but not surprised to see it was uh, him hugging the boy mm. that was a, a nice touch and i'm glad that he got all his children and that they won't drag that storyline out because it is a very brutal kind mm. of storyline those kids are going to have some scars as a result and Paulo says that they will be changed, they will be different. It was really good. It was well done. A shout out also to the Overseer, who I think I vaguely remember from Harry Potter movies. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't think he's ever given a name. Maybe he's referred to as a procurator or maybe or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, who, of course, is killed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, having said that, I saw that guy as being completely legally within his rights mm. to be doing everything that he is doing. Yes. <laughs> but still got killed for the trouble of it. <laughs> yeah, there's... Uh there's no moral absolutes here, are there? That mm. people act in completely irrational ways, which I guess people do all of the time, in that you're quite right that if these children were regarded as slave children who'd been legally sold as slaves, yeah. then Verinus and Pullo thought that, then they wouldn't have had any problem with this treatment. Mm. Mm. So it's not as though Verinus and Pullo suddenly champions of the underclass. It's because these are Verinus's children. Yeah, they don't straight away go out and let everyone go. No. Or, you know, leave the same. It isn't Spartacus, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> that would be an interesting turn, mm. especially if, you know, Paulo has gone, no, I was a slave. I've had enough of all of this. Mm-hmm. Let's go, man. Season three. <laughs> and jump cut. <laughs> so as brutal as this episode was, what did you think of it as a whole? I thought it was, you know, quite solid episode of Rome. Yeah, yeah, I did. I like the way that they have reintroduced Octavian, that we get a sense of that moving along, that we saw these dreadful conditions that slaves might live and work and die in, and the terrible implications for the girls sold into slavery. Apart from the torture scene of Servilia, which is just too hardcore for me, maybe mm. that's just a personal take, Yeah, I, I thought it was a good episode. What about you? 
Yeah, no, I really liked it. I think I've said already, I like the development of Timon. I like that that might mm. actually be going somewhere quite interesting. I'm curious as to where Sevilla and Artia will go from this point. Uh, and I have absolutely no idea actually where Verenus and Pullo will go from this point. They've got the kids back. What is the next episode going to be, you know, some counselling sessions? I think all of the entire cast need counselling at this point, really. Uh, everyone Not a needs Roman a, concept. Everyone needs a hug from a slave. I also like how uh, from the start of the episode right through to the end, you just get very different uh, views on how slaves can be treated, uh, what sort of lives they can lead and what they mean to the Romans all the way from uh, here is a slave bringing you food uh, whose life means nothing to uh, slaves can be manipulated as weapons to Posca, who is an ex-slave giving, you know, Mark Antony a, a, a bit of a cheeky lip. And then straight to the end of what children are as slaves. Mm. And, as I think you noted, Servilia being comforted by her slave. Yes, yeah. So a slave being as close to you as that, of having that close relationship, Mm. potentially. Mm. It's something that I think that the show has done really well, that in all the previous episodes we've seen all these different aspects of what it means to be a slave, even if it's just you know, literally in the background. Mm. The slaves have always been a part of this, but I don't think it's ever been really quite as apparent as it has been in this episode. You've been listening to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast on HBO's Rome with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith, and special thanks to our guest today, Todd Ellis Kessler. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any available podcatching platform. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can like Raising Standards on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page, and you can follow us on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans, I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for Raising Standards, so until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith, you've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.